Hello, and welcome to the latest installment of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Beth Feely, here with my co-host, Andrew Gutman, and we are two accidental parent activists who spoke up about what was happening in our children's schools. And now we talk about those issues and other effect, others affecting schools across the country, and hopefully how to fix them. And today, we welcome a special guest, uh, Kim Borchers. Kim is just a powerhouse with such broad experience, so I'm going to attempt the snapshot version here. Kim is the president and owner of Bird Dog Recruitment and Consulting, LLC. She was formerly with the Foundation for Government Accountability and has spent 20 plus years in the grassroots movement, starting as a young mom fighting pornography in her local public library. She's also active in politics, having served as deputy chief of staff for a Midwest governor and is currently the Republican National Committee woman for Kansas. She also currently advises, advises and directs the Policy Circle's Civic Leadership Engagement Roadmap, or CLEAR program, which is what we are going to talk about today. Kim has received many accolades, including from the Independent Women's Forum, and was also part of the Policy Circle's 2018 Circle Leadership Summit in Chicago, which is where I met her. And she's also a wife and mother of three, one of whom is married and expecting. So congrats on that. So welcome, Kim, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Beth. I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you and Andrew today. So I wanted to start out. Um, you have said that your passion is for preparing women to effectively engage in their local communities and that that's your why. Could you talk about that and also how what you're doing now with the Policy Circle is serving that why? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, sometimes you don't know what your why is until you start doing it and then you figure out, okay, this, this is this why business. Um, what I found through my own um, activism and advocacy for my local community was the fact that in order to be effective, you need to really understand how the system works. And so what, what I have done and partnered with the Policy Circle is really created programming that allows women to build out relationships because the truth of the matter is you don't, you don't get anywhere by yourself. Um, it can be very lonely if you try and do it that way. But is what are the avenues that you can pursue in order to be effective in your advocacy? And how do you build out a relationship with those who are in positions to make those decisions? If you yourself don't think you're really, that's not where you want to spend your career or all of your time, um, building out relationships with those who can be kind of the face and the voice for you. And so that's what we have done. It's really kind of kind of taking a roadmap from my own personal experiences of where I was successful and where I wasn't. I think you learn a lot more from your failures. My return on my, they call it the ROF, the return on your failure um, was to ultimately see then how can I help other women um, as they're in different seasons in their life to be able to be effective advocates for themselves and their communities. Do you think, I mean, having worked with a lot of women, obviously, over the years, do you think that anybody can be an effective advocate? Anybody can be an advocate? Or is there a, you know, a particular skill, personality type that makes one either want to do that or you know, be good at it? Um, you know what? I think if you have a passion for change and can work through your fear and be courageous enough to work through your fears, I think anybody can. Now, um, is everybody an effective advocate? Not necessarily. So um, I think you have to be able to recognize what you're good at and what you're not good at, where you maybe have burnt some bridges and you need to 
send somebody else in there to do it. So it's not your name on it. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a firebrand at some, in some cases. So, you know, I, I'll find good people who I can educate them on how to get something done, but I'll let them be the person who forwards it because the idea is more important than Kim being the person to, to move the idea forward. So I think you have to have the humility and understanding of knowing where you can influence, where you can't, and where you have to build out relationships with other people to kind of carry carry the torch of sorts. Does that answer your, answer your question, Andrew? Yeah, no, terrifically. Thank you. <laughs> so how was it when you jumped in? Uh, you said that you started by recognizing and fighting the presence of pornography at your local library. Can you take us back mm-hmm. to, to your beginnings of advocacy? Oh my, oh my goodness. You know, I'll just say first and foremost, I did not realize I was stepping into a hornet's nest. I thought this was something that was happening in my local community and it was accidental or people just didn't know about it. And if they did, they would be as bothered by it as I was. And what I recognized that was not the case. Um, The ACLU and the American Library Association, I am not on their Christmas card list. Um, They do do not like Kim Borchers. Um, but, but, you know, what's interesting is what I learned very quickly is that relationships matter. And I had the ability to build out a relationship at that time with a gentleman who was the mayor of our city and to help make recommendations of people who should sit on the library board. I mean, part of this was, is I didn't even know who the decision makers were and how did this happen? And this was when, Um, just to be clear, like how many years ago we're talking Over 20 years ago. Over 20 years, okay. It was over 20 years ago. And what I uncovered, um, I will tell you, when I first first started this journey, I remember sending a letter and having a conversation with the executive director of my public library. And I noticed from the conversation that he didn't seem too concerned about liability for the library. I mean, to me, that would have been the first thing, right? The library could be liable for disseminating pornographic material. And I was a corporate executive. I worked in pharma. I mean, I knew when I was getting the runaround and I got off the phone, I told my husband, I said, this guy just put patted my head and said, okay, little lady. So um, I sent a letter to my legislators and it was um, sent a letter to him and then copied my legislators. And it was a year later that I had my local house of representatives show up on my front porch step to tell me that she had had a constituent who had observed young boys checking out Playboy magazine at the library. And they were like 12 and 13 years old. And what we uncovered um, is that in the state of Kansas, there was an affirmative defense clause that basically protected public libraries and public schools from prosecution for the dissemination of pornographic material. And that was why the library was not concerned about accountability. And was this Kim Borchers solo doing this or did you have some friends that you brought in early on? Um, It was solo at first uh, because we were relatively new. I mean, I was, my husband was starting his practice and I had been working corporate traveling all the time. So I hadn't built out tons of relationships. And so I tried to do this on my own. I remember testifying at the legislature by myself and we were, we were effective enough that even someone from the other side of the aisle looked at the executive director of the public library and said, listen, if you don't change your policy at the library, I'm going to have to agree with this lady and we'll change the law. I mean, so, so we, we were pretty good there, but what I realized is that this was happening all across the state. And I knew that not everyone was wired like me. 
I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, I'm tenacious and you tell me no, I'm going to go, hmm, I'm going to get you to yes. So, um, but we ended up building, building out um, a, a really small group of people that grew over time. And it came from people from different faiths and some people who didn't have faiths. I tell everybody at the time, the most amazing experience for me was for me as a, a, a white evangelical woman going into a mosque, getting signatures from an entire mosque who agreed that pornography should not be at the public library, right? Because they tried to make this, oh, this is just one woman's religious issue. It wasn't, it, it crossed all borders. And so um, we knew that Playboy was one thing. We knew that computers were another. We, we began to, there were so many things that uh, were uncovered during this process. But ultimately what was going to change this process is the law changing. And I will tell you now, it's reared its ugly head. We're seeing this all across the country, right? It doesn't matter if it's Loudoun County, you name it. Um, you have all these parents who are very upset about what's happening in their public schools and what's being handed to their children. And I would encourage everybody, you need to go look at what your state law is. And if it's like Kansas, it's the reason why people are not being responsive to you. So um, I, I moved into the governor's office at the time and had to really kind of hand my torch off to somebody else, but it was working behind the scenes. But the, the idea, I think this is what's so frustrating, Beth, is so many people talk about the children and how we care about the children and we care about children's health care, but we don't care about the minds of our children. And this is really important to me, not just to my kids, but to other people's children who are expecting that when they send their kids to get educated or go to the public library, that they don't have to worry about these kinds of things. And that is not the case. Are you, I mean, to, to, as you as you said, I mean, where we are today is obviously a lot worse what we're seeing it happening in schools than what you saw 20 years ago. I mean, are you surprised it's gotten to the state it has gotten? I mean, no, you're shaking your head. People can't see you shaking your head, but you're shaking your head. So not surprised. No, this is, you know, this is what I'll tell you, Andrew. At the time when I was doing research on the impacts of pornography on kids, is the data was showing at that time, even from law enforcement, the number of child-on-child -child sex crimes that were occurring. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, how, how does that happen with kids? And so when you begin to see the behaviors of kids today and the actions that we're seeing, I mean, it, it only it gets exacerbated the more intense that many of these visual things that are in front of them. And it is coming to fruition. The very things that I had talked about are happening. And, you know, I'll just even go, I think about 20 years ago, the ages of some of those young kids. I mean, you talk to most uh, marriage counselors today, it's not finances, it's the major reason for divorce, it's sex addiction, and it's sex addiction from an addiction to pornography. And here we were 20 something years ago trying to fight it, and we were seen as the crazy people. But I will tell you what's interesting is that now I sit in a room um, with many women, I sit on the board of directors for an anti-sex trafficking home. And many of the same people who fought me were now sitting at the same table and they're talking about the harms of pornography. When 20 something years ago, they fought me on this issue. So it's just, you just kind of go, okay, but there's been a lot of damage that's been done and we will continue to fight to protect our kids and our communities. It's encouraging that, you know, it's sad, you know, how many people have been lost in the process and damaged, but it is encouraging that you can now come together with former adversaries mm -hmm. and recognize a problem. And I agree, this is going to get worse before it gets better with the increased sexualization of kids at ever younger ages, especially 
under the guise of, of sex ed, um, you know, the national sex ed standard, like there are things that may not look like outright pornography, but if you dig beneath the surface, some of these materials are very graphic and not appropriate at these ever younger ages. So um, I, yeah, I think there's a lot still to be done uh, in this realm. Well, and, and you know, Beth, you know, that's my story. Every woman out there has some story that they're really kind of going, I need to do something. And it doesn't have to be something that's as controversial as what I've encountered, right? I mean, it, it can be something about, you know, affordable housing, or how do we deal with our homeless situation, or the opioid epidemic. Um, and, and I think what I have learned through this entire journey of 20 years is um, you get a lot further with honey than vinegar. Um, but at the same time, you don't have to compromise what you believe in order to get things accomplished. And so I, I really, my goal and objective is through the CLEAR program is to help women know how to build out positive, effective relationships so, so they can, at the end of the day, check off that box and go, wow, we made this happen here. And like I said, through my failures, um, hopefully other people will have tremendous victories. So let's talk a little bit about the CLEAR program and maybe back up in as to the policy circle, kind of the general mission of the policy circle, and then how CLEAR fits into that, um, which is the area that you specialize in. Well, as you know, Beth, I mean, this great idea of bringing women together in their homes to talk about public policy was kind of the initial goal. And then after five years, you kind of begin to look at yourself and go, okay, we're talking about policy. Now, what are we going to do? How are we going to implement that and execute that? And so that's where clear came um, the genesis. It was the impetus of this. And so what we knew is that this, there's been studies out there saying that most women don't get engaged on these issues. One is because they don't think they have the skills um, or two, nobody asked them. And first of all, I would say, ladies, you have the skills. Um, if you've been successful in the workplace, if you're successful running your homes, you have everything you need in order to go out and be successful on these public policy issues. And I think the best way we can as women is that we hear policy and we think, oh, that's for really smart people, right? Instead of connecting the dots and talk about what does that look like on the ground in your home and how it impacts your children and your pocketbook. And so what we do through CLEAR, it's not passive. It's very action oriented. So you go out and you're going to meet your local official. You're going to meet, uh, let's say, your election commissioner. I always jokingly tell the ladies, most people don't know who their election commissioner is unless they have a problem with their election. So, you know, if you walked in and said, hey, I'd love to know more about what you do and how I can be helpful. Um, but we hear these phrases all the time, right? A canvassing board, a special election. I mean, you know, what's a precinct committee person? Oh, my congressman left. Who's making the decision on replacing them? I mean, most people don't even know how that works. So we're kind of going back to basic civics and we're doing it through action and also learning things. And then by the time you're done, you get a really good feel on the local side. And then we move you into 2.0, should you want to do that? And it's the state side. It's your party apparatus. It's, it's not just the legislative process, it's the executive branch as well as the judicial branch. Um, and then we are launching, we are so excited, um, our Clear Education 3.0 program, which is really just a deeper dive. It's more focused on the education component, um, learning how your local school district works for you to be effective, building out relationships in those places, understanding the role of your state school board. Um, so whether you wanna be an advocate or you might wanna run in the future, 
uh, for school board. Um, these are just skill sets that you're building a really good foundation and have a toolbox you can pull from in the future. Yeah, I want to talk more about the education since this is, you know, we, we got to take back our schools. But but two, two kind of quick questions. Is it does it tend to be all moms or do you have any younger women not yet, you know, not yet mothers, not yet having families? Well, we have not launched it. Um, we launch in the fall. So our very first class will be in September. And I'll, I'll tell you, Andrew, I would really like to see younger women who aren't just moms, because at the end of the day, we are all taxpayers. So we have a financial interest in the success of our schools. So um, we'll, we'll accept, uh, we've got a really diverse group of women right now in age and life you know, experiences and clear. So I would love to see that um, also in the 3.0, because I, I think that insight from younger people is very helpful as we engage and have conversations. And then I'll ask the obvious follow-up question, any thought of expanding beyond just women? Or is there any benefit to having, you know, men, I'll ask the, the question as a man, um, you know, involved in your efforts? That's above my pay grade, Andrew. Okay. I don't make those decisions. You know, I will tell you, I just actually got off a call. I do coaching calls for our clear individuals. And one of the young ladies said, she goes, what I really loved about this is that it was for women. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows what will happen? But, you know, if we have a groundswell, maybe we'll have you lead the clear education 3.0 for men. Okay. <laughs> and just by way of background, and I, I have been involved with policy circles since the beginning, uh, the, the thought was that there really was not a mechanism for women to get together to talk about these issues. So I think it stemmed mostly from that, um, just kind of an unmet need more than any anything to, you know, necessarily cut men out of anything. No, it was just, um, it was really how it organically grew and grew very quickly. Um, it was a, you know, it really started in a living room about what, six or seven years. And so it's now a na nationwide organization and developing these leadership programs. So it's really neat to see um, see it expand and people can check that out at policycircle.org. Take us through what a clear curriculum might look like. Like when people, if they were to sign up and decide that they want to jump in and become a little mm -hmm. more um, educated and prepared to run for school board or, um, you know, as your other programs have done, just, you know, being more involved in their local communities, what are they, what are they getting into? So it's a three month course. Um, it is self-paced. Uh, we do ask that you get your monthly assignments done so that when we have our clear large cohort conversations once a month, you can have a conversation because you've, you've done your homework. Um, but we, we actually start off clear 1.0, uh, taking the Hillsdale College Constitution 101 course. And it is amazing to me how these women, you can tell they're going back into their school mode um, because many of them are retaking the final test because they want to get 100. And I go, ladies, you, this is not a pass fail here. Um, but so that portion of the month, it's, it's, that's a little more passive because you're doing that. Uh, and then uh, they've also got, we've got the uh, women's suffragist movement that we'll be covering as to why this is important for you to be engaged on this. And then once a month, we have a clear cohort conversation. And then we have a policy circle brief in each of those three months. You can't, you can't have a clear program without policy circle conversations. Um, and one is about, you know, civic engagement. Another one is on election integrity. Um, and then another one focuses on, um, 
you know, impacting your neighbor neighborhoods. And so we will meet once a month in smaller cohort groups. And then, as I mentioned to you, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching calls with women. And so that call is really about them, you know, questions they might have that they don't want to ask as a large group, or just as women are uncovering uh, kind of this new opportunity that they didn't know was possible for them, that they're like, okay, what should I do next? So if you look at the time commitment, I mean, you're looking at one hour for a large cohort a month, one hour for a policy circle conversation, and then your homework is probably about two hours a week. Um, and I always tell people, don't cram. This is not college. <laughs> I want you to immerse yourself so you actually remember everything. The older you get, if you don't take your time, you don't remember as well. So um, I think it's this is someone who is really in a season in life um, who's wanting to pursue some different things. And I, I've said this often, Beth, I think COVID, there was a silver lining to COVID. And I think the silver lining is civic engagement. And I think it's parents recognizing, wow, I've been so busy focused on these other things that these things that I say are so important. I have not been investing my time and energy. And some of those things are education. Um, you know, when, when we have them, one of the activities is to attend um, three different meetings, whether it's a city council meeting, a county commission meeting, or a school board meeting. Um, and I, I say three because one, you might have a topic proposed and then they discuss it another time and then it takes a while for a vote because I want them to see what that process looks like. Um, and, and what's nice now is that you're in attendance, you physically go. And I don't think people realize before COVID, nobody was showing up at any of these meetings. They basically, folks were, politicians and elected people were able to do whatever they wanted because their communities were not paying attention. It's not that they didn't care. They just didn't realize they had to pay attention. Um, and so I think there's some real positives that have come out of COVID. Do you think this will stick? Do you think people will continue to have this enthusiasm for advocacy work? Or do you think as we go back to a hopefully post-COVID normal world, people go back to their normal lives and travel and doing things, they, you know, they'll, they'll take a step back from a lot of what you've seen over the last year or two? Oh, Andrew, that is a fantastic question. I hope we don't get back into our routine. I hope our new routine is this. When they say the new normal, this is the only new normal I want. <laughs> the new normal of people being civically engaged. Um, I think you'll, you'll always have people kind of peel off, um, but it's like any movement, you know, I, I heard it say it was only 33% of people who were for the American Revolution. You had 33% in the middle and then the 33% that wanted to stay with, with Britain. It's that I'm, I'm, I, I just want to kind of keep the 33% in the middle engaged because we need them. Well, and people have seen what can happen when you're not engaged. And, you know, quite frankly, if you can make time for all of these other commitments in your life, carving out a couple hours a week to pay attention to what's going on in your community, and as you said, as a taxpayer, because you're paying for it regardless, mm -hmm. um, seems to me something that it's got to it's got to become part of the routine. Uh, do you ever talk about that with with your cohorts, the people that are a part of it? Yeah, I think part of what I try and stress is that, especially if you're a parent, you have uh, some little people who are observing you. And what are you modeling? And what are you modeling that's important? And I, I will say, when I reflect back, my kids are older now. Um, and I've got one, one that's still, I've got one more year for him in high school. 
all of my kids are politically engaged um, in some capacity. They understand the issues and they can articulate them and have thoughtful discussions with people. And I will tell you, I believe it's because of what we and what they lived through <laughs> with a mom who was civically engaged. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe Andrew, maybe it will continue because we have this next generation of children that will see their parents doing something that the generation before was not doing. Maybe that's the legacy that we're going to leave. I hope so. I think what, what we lack, though, and this is something that I've been you know, thinking about for the last year is how do we get more civic education for the kids, since that is clearly not being taught well or at all in our schools, or if it is being taught, our kids are being taught to despise and dismantle a lot of these values that I think, you know, the three of mm -hmm. us hold dear. Mm -hmm. That's a separate problem. Though. I wonder, I wonder if there's a thought, actually, we, I talked about men and I talked about, you know, single women versus moms in what you do. I wonder if there's a thought of bringing any education to the kids. Well, I, I think the people who are really engaged at the school level, I think that's what they need to be pushing towards. I think they need to, folks need to recognize the role of their states, their state school boards. Most people don't even know who their state school board members are, right? And that's that's where a lot of this happens. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that needs to be th that needs to be advocated there. But I would also say the role of when you look at elected officials in states and you look at the amount of money that is spent on education. I don't know. I know in Kansas that um, it's about sixty-two cents on the dollar for every dollar that's collected is spent on education. And so my big question is, is what does that look like? What does that product look like at the end? Um, that kids sit in a building and hate their country and think that this is a terrible place to live. I'm thinking, wow, we've really failed them if that's the case. So you've mentioned, you've mentioned some things that tell me that I think there, there is always going to be a group of parents who are going to stay engaged because they're, they're, they're now fired up and they're recognizing and saying that they can actually make some real change, but you got to know how to do that change. You, you can't keep going the same, doing the same thing over and over again. It will not work. Do you, and you know, it's very state by state, obviously, um, because education is not in the constitution. It is one of the things left to the states. So how much do you have participation from across the U.S. or is it kind of concentrated regionally? And then also how, how are you coaching people to, I guess, really dig in and find out? Because it really, it could be very different um, as you go from state to state. So there's going to be some rolling up of the, of the sleeves uh, to really understand this, uh, you know, how their education system works. Right. Well, and you know what, Beth, um, great point. Um, you know, one of the great gifts of federalism is that every state does it a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that all states do a lot of things differently from the way they manage their Medicaid program to the way they manage their labor departments. And so education is not different. One of the great things about, and the way we created CLEAR, it is not state specific. So the questions that we set up is really them taking a deep dive of how their state looks. We are across the nation. And what I think is valuable in that is that women can learn what is happening in other states and go, that's an excellent idea. How could we do that where I live? And then they're on this next journey, right? Does, do they need legislation? Can it just happen at the state school board level? Is it something that can be implemented just locally? 
So that's, that's the value of having all of these women from different parts of the country is getting great ideas. And I, and, and this, and the women who invested in the clear program, we had Amy Viana, who was deputy um, undersecretary for under Betsy DeVos in the department of education. She was fantastic. Just really talking about the role of the federal government. Um, we have Erica Donaldson, who's, you know, she's, she is fantastic about school choice and charter school movements, what she's done um, in, in her area. And then we have Donna Arjun who was talking about school budgets. Cause let me tell you, all of these school budgets look different. They have set them up differently. So she creates the questions that you should be asking to help you find the answers that you could get this. You can get the answers in a state, but it's going to look different if, if you're looking at a different document. So We've, we've tried to address that, knowing, knowing how different states are set up. So that's a great, great question. And I'm glad you, t- you touched upon this, the, the power of a network. I think one of the things that can be really helpful is being connected with people who have similar interests. They may not look exactly the same, but you've kind of sounds like got a built-in you know, group of women who, I mean, maybe do they develop a camaraderie of sorts where mm-hmm. you're kind of hashing through some of these questions and, and just figuring out how to get good at this um, and bouncing ideas off of one another. I, I imagine that that's another benefit from just being plugged in with, with this program. That to me is the greatest gem that comes out. It's that's hidden gem in the clear programs. Um, and that's, you know, we have a large cohort, but then we break you down into a smaller kind of policy circle conversation. And so you've got someone who's having a conversation in Montana with someone who's in Florida and New York and then Illinois. And then quite honestly, some of these women go, hey, next time in, you know, I'm in Dallas or if I'm down in Miami, how about I look you up? I mean, it's, it is fun to hear the stories of these women who have built out a relationship from just doing these virtual learning experiences. You mentioned school boards a couple of times, and, and obviously that is something that has gotten a lot of attention in the last year. People running for school boards that otherwise may never have thought about it. We know it's mm-hmm. difficult. We know you're often up against teacher union funding and, and advocates on the other side. Is that something that you're, you know, you're spending a lot of time doing? Is it something that is popular? Is it something that a lot of women are interested in running for? We saw the largest number of new individuals run for school board in the state of Kansas in the history of the state this last time around. And um, I don't think that's going to change. And I will tell you, it it was so overwhelming. We had one particular board that the remaining school board members who were not up, they quit and the superintendent left. I mean, they kind of knew. That happened in Colorado too, I read. And I think it's happened in quite a few places. Um, these parents who ran, they had been present, they had been thoughtful at school board meetings, and they were, there was, they were not responding to them. And so I think they knew there's a new sheriff in town, and they might need to pack their bags and go ahead and go. Um, but I, I see a lot of it. But this is, you know, Andrew, I had a, a new school board member say to me, she goes, I'm the dog who caught the car. Now what do I do? And so that's part of the reason why we created this clear education program is so people don't come in just so overwhelmed at what's going to be thrown at them. And you mentioned the teachers unions. Um, I mean, what they do is they inundate you with so much information that at the end of the day, you don't know what you really need to know. So if we can help women be better prepared in that, 
then we've been successful. Have you had anybody enter the program and then say, you know, this isn't for me, this is too much work, I'm overwhelmed? Like, has that happened? You're talking clear as a whole. Um, yes, yes, actually. Uh, from the perspective of, I think people didn't know what they signed up for because I think they, I think they thought it was going to be passive. I'm just going to watch something, and someone's going to spoon feed me and tell me what to do. And it's like, no, this is action oriented. Now, the other thing I would say is life happens, and folks have different seasons in their life. And you know what? You've got a job change. Parents have gotten sick. You name it. What I love is women who started the course had to step back and not finish. And then they come back another cohort or two later, and then they start back into the program. And that just makes my heart happy. Um, but if, you know, this is, this is about, do you want to do something? It's not just, do you want to hear it? It's, it's doing something. So um, that's real change happens then. Well, I wish it had been around when I was beginning my my foray into this world uh, because there was no roadmap. Roadmap. There was a lot of trial by fire and figuring it out as you go along. And you know, there's always going to be some of that. It's not like you're ever going to be perfectly prepared for every situation because that is not life. But to have a foundation and certainly a network and you know, I was kind of thinking jokingly, Andrew, like the whole network and the women doing this together. Maybe that's why it's not with men, not to be stereotypical, but you know, it's funny I, I don't know. I, it, I've said this a number of times. I, you know, I know a lot of the groups fighting broadly within the, you know, the K through 12 education advocacy world over the, you know, wokeness and CRT issues and all that. And almost 100% it's the, it's the organizations started by women and specifically moms that are the ones that are getting stuff done. The ones that are that are started by dads or, or men, not as effective. <laughs> so there's something there. There's no question. I will. You guys don't have to respond to that, but I'll, I'll say that there's something there. There's no question that women get stuff done. I'm not. I'm going to zip my lip on that. <laughs> <laughs> so so how where would people find information about the clear program? How, how do you sign up? What is what does that look like? That's great, Beth. Um, it's the policycircle.org. You referenced it earlier. And there's a top banner that references clear, or they can plug in when you kind of can check different things where they have a little magnifying glass. They can plug in civic leadership engagement roadmap or clear, and it'll pop up. And uh, we just started our summer class, and then we will be, uh, we're taking applications now for the launch of our 3.0. Uh, education program that'll start September. It'll run September, October, November. And we will also have a clear 1.0 class at that time. So two classes will be running 1.0 and 3.0. So that's thepolicycircle.org. And I love, 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 love to have folks sign up. That's what I was going to end this with, which, and, and, and thank you for coming on and, and encouraging women. If you had to pitch to women to get involved, what, you know, get more people involved, What's your, what's your, you know, sort of pitch to do that? My pitch is it's time to stop griping and typing and go do. And if you want to be effective because time is a commodity, then you need to be prepared and you will be prepared by taking clear. And I'd love to have you join the program. That's my pitch. Griping and I love it. Griping and typing. Me too. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, 
Beth, this is something you've been involved with, Policy Circle. You want to talk a little bit about how it's influenced your life and advocacy work? Sure. So I was involved with what preceded the launch of this national policy circle network. And it literally began in a living room with uh, my friend, Sylvie, and I, we gathered a group of women and started talking about policy. We actually read the first five chapters of uh, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose as the first discussion topic, because we knew there were a lot of women out there that had, you know, interests in becoming a little bit more educated on policy, but really not nowhere to talk about it. So we started that, I think it's been about seven years now. And um, that idea then Sylvie took and launched nationally. And it absolutely played a role because the model is that you, you read something ahead of time and you come prepared to study, uh, you know, you, and you come prepared to discuss. And when you get in that setting and you've done the homework and then you articulate your views, you just become more confident at at doing that. And it really spilled over into other areas of life. And so I think I was was prepared when I saw an issue at my local high school, which is how I became this um, accidental activist. I had, um, you know, I had, I had been in situations before where I needed to figure out what the issue was and what I wanted to say about it and then speak publicly. So it's a, it was a really great group to be a part of and it grew so quickly. That was something really notable. I mean, we started with five people. We were at 15, we were at 60 within a couple months that wow. were coming to meet. So Through it really, word of mouth. I mean, how did that all word of mouth? This is just the local group here where I right. live in the North suburbs. And then the and, and likewise, when they when they launched it nationally, um, that was called the Rose Friedman Circle. That was the initial name. And so better that they I think the policy circle is a good national name uh, that grew. I mean, we had hundreds of circles, thousands of people within a year or two. I mean, it really has grown nationally. Um, it's in I mean, it's in a uh, last I count uh, like 30, 45 states. I oh. mean, it's really it's taken off. And then it's neat to see them start these, um, you know, meet the needs that are emerging. I think clear is because once women got, you know, educated and confident and wanted to engage, uh, they wanted some more training in order to actually go and do kind of like Kim was saying. So um, it's a great organization. I'll ask you the same question I asked Kim. Do you think post-COVID we keep up this level of activity and level of interest and level of advocacy, or do you think people go back? being, you know, more indifferent like they were. You know, depends on, I think depends on what, what people are seeing in their classrooms. I think if they see some of the issues go away, do you mean education specifically or engagement well, in general? Both. I think both. I think the worry on education is, you know, a lot of people have said, and I think it's right, is that they saw what was going on because of Zoom school. Now that kids are back in school and schools are even better at hiding what they are doing and even, be- and even less transparent, you know, parents might see less. So are they going to either assume that things are okay, that they've toned things back or just lose interest because they're not seeing a lot of this egregious stuff? Um, So I think education and more broadly, do you think we continue this level of civic engagement? I think it'll be a mixed bag. I think some parents, whether it's out of necessity or because they are, you know, busy, they've got work and obligations that they just won't have the time and energy to dive into the backpack and the iPad and, to really dig for that material, because I agree with you. I think schools will uh, be far more under the radar. I've even heard of stories where somebody told me they couldn't bring the social studies work home out of the classroom 
that tells you there's something that is, yeah. no, I, it's, want you to I know see. from the, so, but I, I do think a handful, I do think a handful will remain very actively engaged. It may not be even 50%, but I, I think you will get a solid 20% that will remain engaged and will want to um, continue fighting and, and really stay on, on the schools to make sure that they're doing their job. So I think, I think it will be, you know, we'll have some carryover. I think. How about you? What do you I, think? I think we will too. I, I think we will. I, I mean, always going to lose some people, but no, I think this is a, a longer term movement and it's necessary because I think we are, we were collectively asleep to the takeover of our schools. Now we have awoken to this, no pun mm-hmm. intended. And, you know, we are just at the very beginning of fighting back. And I think it's a long guerrilla war here to fight back. And the only way to do that is to get more and more people involved and mm-hmm. running for school board and, and advocating and running for other political office and, and all these things that, you know, policy circle and, and you and Kim are doing. Mm-hmm. So I certainly hope it continues. And I meant to ask him, you know, it's a, it's a nonpartisan group. So I imagine because a lot of the, the way they examine issues is through kind of a free market lens, it attracts a certain political type, but it really, um, I'd be interested to see, have they, have they had, you know, people from both sides applying because it would, um, it would benefit, it would clearly benefit both. Yeah. I think we're going to, I think we're going to continue to see the participation. I think that people, you know, even if it's at a really not, you're not running for elected office, even if you join, you know, become some sort of, uh, you know, precinct captain, or maybe you join a civic organization, or maybe you, you know, any sort of engagement, I think can be healthy and lead to others. And I think, I think we will see continued, um, continued awareness. I mean, I hope so. I think I, I remember that civic engagement brief. That's actually what I used to do for the policy circle is I edited the policy briefs. So it was such a, such a great job because I was, you know, learning, but then also doing my favorite right. thing, which is editing, you know, um, for people like me. So it's kind of a dreamy job. And, you know, it was really something I'm not sure, at least when I was a kid, you know, I, I think things have changed since we were kids um, in terms of that civic engagement. And I think from generation before that, it was even more different. And so I'm kind of happy to see this rebirth of, and this renewed focus yeah. on civic engagement and the whole, um, I don't know if, have you, did you ever study uh, democracy in America, Tocqueville, mediating structures? I, it, and... It's, 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 <laughs> it's on my, it, Sorry I, I think you... <laughs> I read pieces of it. It's actually, no, it's actually on my Kindle as, um, one of the books that I need to read this summer. I'm working my way through it. And you okay. know, it's in, you, you can do it in small doses. It's not, you know, like 50 page chapters on, on each, like you can do it. And maybe I recommend it because it is, it, it is rather voluminous, but it's well, really, it's considered the greatest book ever written on American democracy. Yeah. I mean, well, and it talks a lot about like people doing life together at a really local okay. level. I think that's what Tocqueville saw was that was something that was different um, from his experience. And that was happening in America. It's kind of that community by community, you know, coalescing and solving problems together um, and not looking to some far off um Power, central power uh, to do so. And so I think you're seeing kind of a renewal of that idea. And but we have um, got so far away from that. For sure. For all sorts of reasons. And the question is, can we get back to that? And I think to what you were saying, and we're about to say, mm-hmm. this is, you know, one of the steps to get back to that. But there, there's, there's a whole, this, you know, a lot we could talk about that, you know, for the reasons why we have moved away from mm-hmm. not just community engagement, but community in general. And the internet, mm-hmm. I think, has a lot to do with that. Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, 
but then you can spend a lot more time. I mean, you almost, it, it, you know, it's a, it's, there's a upside and downside that does it. You can do some things far more efficiently. So you have more time to connect with your local community friends and neighbors because of or it. You but then yes, ne- you or you can watch more Netflix or you can watch more whatever, Netflix. Or yeah. More time on Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> anyway. All right. No. Well, we, this is a big topic. I mean, this, I, I, I look, this is one of those topics that I think is broadly being debated as part of the cultural war, you know, in this country. So right now technology in the classroom, future show, yeah. come back. Come back. So on that note, please come back. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this conversation and we will be back soon for another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Our next guest we will preview, I think, is a very special guest, uh, Betsy DeVos, former U.S. Secretary of Education. So we are looking forward to recording that and we hope that you will listen to that. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star rating on wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Uh, Share us, give us comments, give us suggestions for future guests. And on behalf of Beth Feely, I am Andrew Gutman, and thank you for tuning in to Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.